I purchased my own ISBN, which is the identification number for books. And if you can do that, you can uh, market it through any organization. Whereas if you take the supplied one by Amazon, you can only use their organization to sell your book. So, and also, I think it's more important for the ebook market. That's just where they have more of the constraints. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Frank Hopkins, a local author who has just penned his fourth book called Abandoned Homes, Vietnam Revenge Murders. Set against the backdrop of rural Delmarva, his characters discover skeletons in rundown homes, as well as hidden plots that twist and turn from the Vietnam era to present. Frank joins us today to talk about his new book, just published in September 2017. So welcome to the podcast, Frank. I'm glad to be here. One of the things that I am so intrigued about with the concept of finding these abandoned homes and then Paul O'Hare, the main character, falls through the floor sort of right at the beginning to, to find a skeleton. So I've seen these homes my whole life, you know, these old farmhouses just kind of set back in the country. I think it's kind of a natural inclination to kind of want to walk through them or wonder what's in there. Well, I really never saw abandoned homes till I moved here. I grew up in the New York City area, and I lived most of my life in Washington, D.C. So when I saw them, I saw the first one, I said, wow, they should tear that down. And then after about the 150th one, in about two weeks, I realized they're not going to tear them down. So I thought up uh, the story's introduction to the Vietnam uh, book. What's interesting about the region in general is that people own these properties and they abandon the homes but not the property. So it might be on a farm and they just build a house someplace else on the property and just leave the old house behind. Um, did you – I was under the impression you were doing research about you know, what, how, how some of these houses ended up abandoned and to whom they belonged and things like that. Uh, I wasn't, but Paul O'Hare, the main or one of the main characters, was doing. What was his um, investigatory process like? Where did he start? What did what did he do to find out about the different homes? And- so he used Google Search and Google Maps, and he just zeroed in on the homes, and he found out the ones that looked pretty bad, and he counted that he had 214 that he wanted to look at, and then he drove around to figure out the 10, the 15 best, and he. Uh, wrote letters to the owners because you can get that from the property records. Right. And uh, 10 of them said he could investigate, five said they couldn't, so he started. We all have this sense that these houses have a story that makes them go from full to empty and then from empty to abandoned and then from abandoned to dilapidated. Right. And what were some of the things that you thought about these houses that kind of compelled you to write the story? I didn't think that much in detail about the history of these houses because they really had the the start of the novel. Mm. Uh, But I knew most of them declined because the small farms were purchased by larger farms and it was sort of an enclosure movement in uh, southern Delaware. The owners, the new owners, just did not want to tear them down because mm. it was expensive to tear them down. The abandoned homes really sort of serve as the springboard for a novel in a larger sense about Correct. the yes. Vietnam era. Correct. What was the inspiration to link these abandoned homes to a story about Vietnam and murder and those well, sorts of I things? had the, uh, the Vietnam part outlined, and then I was just looking for a a way to connect them to Sussex County, because this is where I live and I want to write about it. Uh, mm. It's a very interesting area. Sure. And so that was basically it. It seems like a stretch without giving too much away. Uh, I mean, Vietnam didn't really happen here. Well, that was one of the points of the book. Vietnam happened all over the country. Right. Now, most of the people uh, 
alive today. Uh, in fact, if you're over or under 54, you really didn't live during the Vietnam period. You weren't uh, relevant to understand what was going on. And the conflict affected life in the University of Maryland as well as a lot of other campuses, and it tore apart families uh, throughout the country. So it did occur here in a sense, just like the wars we're into now. Right. If someone's hurt in the Mideast, it affects the people that live in your hair. Mm-hmm. So sort of like the, the tentacle effect of war. Exactly. And one of the things I wanted to do was tell the people that would read the book that, hey, this is not something that occurred 50 years ago. It's occurring now uh, with the uh, Bush going to war. Not everybody was really in favor of his going to war. Same thing happened in the uh, 60s in Vietnam. I like the idea of you carrying around a story and waiting for a setting. Does that happen a lot when you're doing your writing? Like, do you have stories in your mind that are waiting for settings and or settings that are waiting for stories? Can you talk It's to more me? stories waiting for settings, yes. And how do you know the settings? Is it is it you know it when you see it, or are you looking for something kind of specific? You're outlining, and it just you get three or four ideas, and you pick the best one eventually. Mm-hmm. And so what were some of the ideas that didn't make it for the setting for this book? Were there any? Uh, not that I remember, no. I mean, you know, it takes a <laughs> year to write the book, and so you you tend to suppress those bad memories of wasted time. Yeah, I guess if you, if you remembered them, maybe they would have been <laughs> worth making the setting. Correct, yes. In some of your previous novels, you do a lot of a connection to the government. In one of the, in the the book, The Opportunity, there was, you know, government sort of espionage and kind of contracts and that sort of thing. So... Well, I used to work uh, as a government contractor. Right, that's where, yeah. And, I, and the opportunity was about corruption, federal government contracting. Right. And I was in business development. And I saw some things that occurred. I thought I would write them down, comprehend that it's not as honest as you might think it is. And, and how did you bring your experience to bear with this current book? Well, I went to the University of Maryland. And that was one of the uh, major settings of the book, as well as Southern Sussex County. And when I was a graduate student there, the Defense Department had a program to educate the soldiers so they could become good managers, which is fine. And there was a, a large anti-war contingent at, in the University of Maryland. Mm. And two of the students who were left-wing students had been to Cuba and everything. They committed suicide, supposedly. And so I always remembered that. And I thought, that would be a good idea for a book because nobody believed they committed suicide. Oh, I see. So that's where the conspiracy and angle of it comes in. Exactly. As well. Right. I'd like to talk about kind of your your writing process generally because I'm not I'm not an outliner. Create? Do you create notes and then an outline, or an outline and then notes, or what well, is it? Well, my writing process was derived from when I used to manage large government proposals, you know, hundred million, two hundred million dollars, mm. where you have to be very careful that you get all your facts right, uh, and then if you make a change in one part of the proposal, you make sure it's carried over. So I start out with a, an outline, uh, you know, maybe 30, 40 chapters, and I get an annotated outline within each chapter, and each annotation is really a scene of the chapter. And then I put the uh, chapters in the first row of a spreadsheet, and then I put the scenes in the second row. And then all the other rows deal with uh, characteristics of that chapter, the characters are in it, what point of view it is, who's, who's mainly doing the, the speaking mm. or the dialogue, the time period, the setting, the location. I have a uh, section on the first sentence of the chapter, uh, which is critical for getting the reader to want to read on. Right. And then I outline a summary of what's in the chapter, and then I, of course, I have a transition line. Not just the chapter, but I do it by scene. 
Mm-hmm. Excuse me. So I might have 40 chapters and 250 scenes. And my writing is very date-dependent. Uh, so if I make one change, I have to make sure it carries through all the chapters. And one of the advantages of doing that, if I get writer's block on chapter 23 for some reason, I can just say, screw that. I'll go to write chapter 41 mm-hmm. and write that. <laughs> right. You know, so I don't get writer's block that way. And I learned that procedure writing these proposals. And then when I went to a writer's conference, uh, a romance writer was talking about her techniques mm-hmm. and it was very similar. That explains why they can write 12, 13, 14 books a year. I right. Guess. Because right. if you, I guess if you have a spreadsheet, you can also just kind of change, change one thing and change everything else. I, I right. want to follow up on that because uh, you said that you, um, you, when you change one date, they don't automatically change themselves. It's not like a proper spreadsheet. It's just like it, you just know where it follows through. Right, yeah. Right. right. It, yes. So if this happened on Thursday, 10 days later something happened, it still has to happen 10 days later. Correct, yes. Yeah, that's it's it when it's when it's that kind of detail, I can see why why a spreadsheet might be necessary. Yeah, and, and in the book, I had um, since it's very time dependent. Each chapter started out with a time period, uh, and the day and the date, so that the reader was grounded. Especially when you uh, move from setting to setting, that uh, eliminates a lot of confusion. You're listening to so. What's your story? And today we're talking with local author Frank Hopkins. Yeah, I think that's interesting, um, using Excel as a tool for outline. I've never, I'd never conceived of that as a, as a tool before. And all the, you know, when I've been doing, you know, outlines for, or doing, creating a kind of a, an arc, a story arc for what I'm going to be doing. I've never thought to use Excel spread. That's really cool. I've never thought about using that as a tool before. No, it doesn't mean that you start and once you finish the Excel spread, you just, Right from that, you get ideas, you talk to people, and you change it, you know, in critique groups or uh, sure. things of that nature. And so you, it's a dynamic spreadsheet, basically. And, and, and so you're using it, though, as, a, as notes. It's not, it's, not just a, it's not just a skeleton. It's a, it's a skeleton with – it's an annotated skeleton, I guess. No. Well, it has a little more flesh because you have the beginning and opening and ending sure. sentences. You um, have the summary. So once I have that, I can just cut those – and paste it into you know a word page, and I have the start of the scene, right? And then I just fill in uh, the middle, the middle, yeah. And I guess that you already again we were talking, you were mentioning earlier about how it helps prevent writer's block because you have a momentum built into every time you sit down and write. Correct. Yes. Yeah, and I think that something you, just to draw on something you said before is that I think one of the mistakes that writers can make is losing sense of are losing track of the timeline. Right. And then in that moment, you sort of lose your reader because we're just like, I don't know if I'm in a flashback. I don't know if I'm in current time. And especially if you have, you know, with this book where you're starting in present day, but we've got to go back to the Vietnam era and come forward. That's a lot of time to cover. So I would think that maintaining the timeline both in clarity for you and the reader, was probably of utmost importance. It was. I found out and after reading the first draft that I really have to make sure that timeline was correct because in the first draft, of course, it wasn't. And people notice that, and people notice that kind of thing. It's one of the things that, um, and I guess we can get into, into self-publishing now, it's one of the things that's always a danger when you are your own editor in the long term or, or you're, you're doing a lot of the editing yourself, it's important to make sure you keep up with these threads. That's true. Now, I was fortunate uh, 
as many people in self-publishing do, I'm a member of a couple of critique groups, and they do a lot of the structural, logical editing, not the copy editing, Mm -hmm. as you're going along and helping you uh, avoid mistakes. So for you on on abandoned homes, what did you really find was the best value of the critique group for you with this work? Um, one of my critique groups had a PhD in pharmacology, and so he was able to help me out with a lot of the medical things oh, wow. cool. that went on, uh, basically. Yeah. No, I, there's been other people that we've had <clears throat> on the show who have – you know, the critique groups always seem to be something that writers are either like love them or hate them. There's really not too many people that kind of fall in the middle. Some people prefer like a one-on-one sort of mentor-mentee relationship right. or kind of a one-on-one relationship. And then there are other people who are like, you know, look for as much feedback and as many different eyeballs as they can get. So would I put you in that many eyeball cam? Correct, yes. Yeah. One of the other guys uh, was an expert on guns and local politics, so he was able to fill me in on how organizations operated and what type of gun to use in a particular murder. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like, who's that guy? Who's like that local murder gun guy? That's what. (laughs) Well, just uh, to do, to do a a minor plug, but also because it's interesting the Maryland Writers Association has either recently has or will have um, an event where they're having um, a forensic expert come and talking about how bodies decompose and and things oh, wow, like that. Really? Yeah, I, I I think it may have, it's one of it's one of the one of the chapters is having that. And uh, one of our future guests is going to be um, running the Ocean City Comic Book Show, and they have a guy that's going to be doing a CSI Gotham City, and it's the same thing like how how you could go about solving these crimes, fictional crimes in. Like real crimes in a fictional setting, I think, and that, those are really, I think, useful tools for someone, especially if you're writing about espionage. And I have to do a lot of research, especially on the forensics of bodies decomposing. There's a number of books out there. Uh, I found a very good book by a, I think he's a retired New York City detective who wrote about the procedures that the police use, mm-hmm. and it's a lot different than what a lot of us think. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that component because in the book you have um, your lead male character is Paul O'Hare, and then he has a, a love interest who's also the lead detective on the case. Right. So how did you go about um, making sure that the details were correct when it came to the investigation component? Did you like meet up with like some local detectives and be like, "Hey, how do you how do you do your job?" Uh, no, no, I did the research from the New York City. Uh Oh, gotcha. Uh, writer okay. and from other sources. And then I had this uh, guy who, with the guns who's a local politician who told me how things operate in Delaware. So that, that protected me. Yeah. yeah, because when you're writing fiction, you want to get the details right. I mean, it's Correct. a story that you make up, and it's a story that you're inspired by by either, you know, a sus- you know s- suspicious suicides or, you know, abandoned homes. But you also, as a fiction writer, I think the detail, you've got to be able to lock down because otherwise your reader's going to be like, oh, well, that's not true. And you, you don't know, want it to be, off. you don't want anything to be distractingly wrong. It's okay if you, if you, if you, if you have a factual error, people might not notice unless it's a distractingly factual error. Well, one of the big things that I was doing wrong, I would have the detective ask the people working for her to please do this and please do that. And this guy says, no, cops never say please. They're bosses. They give orders, basically. 
So I had to rewrite a lot of stuff, and but I think it made it better. Again, because it's not something. It's something that, like the dog that didn't bark, you notice. You notice by its absence. It makes it. It makes it seem more authentic. And Correct. You, you may not have noticed if there were a lot of pleases in there, but why? Why? Why take that chance? Correct. Yes. When you go to approach the process of okay, book is in and it's done. Um, been through several rounds of editing. What is your next step for that? Is there a moment where you're like? I'm going to let this bake a little more or is it like, nope, it's done. Let's get it out there. How do you uh, get it out there and start marketing things? I've been putting out some Facebook uh, posting about the book. Right. Uh, I just got a, a second uh, five-star uh, review of it. So I posted that today. Oh yeah. And hopefully uh, people will read that and say, Hey, I should get this book. Yeah. You know? Cause I, cause <laughs> you use the, the uh, Amazon create space vehicle for, for this one. Uh, no. Yes, I did, right. Yeah. But um, I purchased my own ISBN, which is the identification number for books. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, you can uh, market it through any organization. Whereas if you take the supplied one by Amazon, you can only use their organization to sell your book. So I expect okay. to have different distributors uh, oh. with the book in the future. That's interesting. In a, few, in a week or so, actually. Is, is, is that common knowledge? I did, I'd never heard that before. Uh it wasn't until uh, I Your started last looking book? it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I started looking at it. Yeah, yeah, because the the ISBNs are publisher specific, so it would make sense that if you go through Amazon Create Space and you're using an Amazon Create Space ISBN, that you would not be able to then translate that over to Barnes and Noble or over to to another well, format. Well, what if Barnes and Noble wants to buy it, they buy it from Create Space. Exactly. Right, rather than from me. Right. Directly. So and also I think it's more important for the ebook market. Mm. Uh, that's Why is where that? they have that's just where they have more of the constraints. Because in the in the hard copy or the paperback copy book, once books are out there, uh your biggest competition is none of the books, but it's uh, used copies of your own book. Right, that's what I always say when I'm when I'm in the uh, goodwill. I'm always holding my breath. I'm like, when when am I going to say? It? It's only a matter of time <laughs> before I see before I see. And I, I I hope that it's personalized so that I can um, really? bring it back to the person who gave it to the goodwill. Like to Stephanie, <laughs> enjoy this book about Delaware beer right. from Tony. <laughs> and you're gonna come knocking on my door. I got you. No, just just send you send it to you as a present. That's my. It's just I was thinking of you. I thought I'd send you a copy of my book. I didn't know whether you had one or not. That's how I, <laughs> that's how I'll do it when I inevitably find mine at a garage sale. There you go. <laughs> You're listening to So What's Your Story? And today we're talking with local author Frank Hopkins. So for you, with the relationship that you've had with Amazon, deciding to take your own ISBN, how did you kind of come to that as an author? Like, how did you kind of decide? You know what? I'm just gonna I'm I'm going to take over more ownership of my ISBN. I just feel like that's an, an well, just from doing research and marketing books, and, right. and I got that from a number of uh, websites and blogs. It it was advantageous. And one of the guys in our critique group for his first book, he bought his own ISBN. Mm. And now, how difficult is it to buy an ISBN? It's extremely easy. Uh, there's one company in the United States that Balker? sells them. Yes, Balker, and all you do is get on their website and. Uh, you just purchase it. Just, yeah. yeah, yeah. You just like just like you would go buy Frank's book on Amazon. You can right. just go buy an ISBN number. And so now your i you have an ISBN number, and then you add 
a number for every book at the end. So, so Stephanie publishes here at Saltwater, mm-hmm. and you have a Saltwater ISBN, and then you tack it onto the book. No, so every book and each format of every book gets its own ISBN. So a paperback. So Frank's book, Abandoned Homes, Vietnam Revenge Murders. The paperback gets one ISBN. A hardback version, should he do that, would get another ISBN. And the eBooks get two. One for the the diff- there's two different eBook formats. Mm-hmm. So each one gets its own ISBN. Uh, number. So as Saltwater, I purchased like a big hunkin' lot of them. Oh, I, I think see. I purchased like a thousand of them. I purchased and ten. <laughs> has, I have a thousand of them. So I'm like, you know, so I just, I mean, I'll be sitting on ISBNs for a little while. But so I purchased like a publisher's lot because as people come to use our services, we have, you know, right, right off the bat, there's four ISBNs. And then mm-hmm. if you decide that you have to do a second edition, you have to cancel one and apply a new one. So it's just, um, I think it was about a 13 digit number. I think it is 10, 13, 13, right? yeah, 13 10 for the ebooks. Yeah. So oh, it's just fascinating to me. I, I thought, I thought that they might be like banks and routing numbers, where if you saw the first four numbers, no, you'd know it's a what. unique number, and it goes into Irwin and, and who else holds for oh, for ordering your books. There are two major booksellers, and the bookstore just key in the ISBN number, and they get all the information about the book, the price, the location, Size, the author, page everything. number, right. publishing, yeah. So they're they're pretty. So so he's his own publisher. Yes, and that and that and that. Ocean View Press. Oh, I really? Thought, Ocean View Press. Ocean View Press. It's where I live. Oh, you, that's awesome. You should have called it Goodbye Frank Press. <laughs> I'm a little hurt. <laughs> <laughs> That's my next book. When you, well, when you make a, when you make a movie, it can be it could be good fi- goodbye Frank Productions. Actually, I did get an inquiry from one of the people who commented on the Facebook post. Yeah, is this a script? Is this going to be a script for a movie? I said I don't know, but I'm willing to write it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all willing to to take care and to you know. Even though I know nothing about script writing, which is completely different than. Writing a novel, right? There's uh, stage direction, I, I think, and yeah, and dialogue, which terrifies me. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a dialogue person. How do you? Because you have, you have, an, you're not afraid of dialogue. No, not at all. And and so, uh, what are some of your, what are some of your tricks to make the dialogue feel more natural? Because my problem with dialogue is I can do two or three lines, but anything that's extended starts to feel phony to me after a while. Um. Well, I took a class from uh, Mary Beth Fisher on how to do dialogue. From she's from the Robot Speech Writers Group, and you have to be very careful because dialogue in a book is not the way you speak, mm. uh, like we're speaking now. And you want to make sure there's nothing extraneous there that uh, the point of view of the dialogue or the dialogue reflects the point of view. Like if you have a highly educated professor, they all speak differently uh, than someone living on Skid Row, mm-hmm. for instance. And you want to get that in your dialogue. And is that part for you? Is that part of character development as well? It's character development, yes. I see. Right. And so when you're starting to put these characters together, how long does it take before you can kind of hear their voices and what they're going to sound like? Well, the first thing I do is I write a page or two on the characters, the physical characteristics, their behavior, their background. And that gives me sort of the first instance. And, of course, the first draft, the dialogue is uh, – kind of homogeneous mm-hmm. and then the second and third drafts it gets much better yeah i've heard a lot of fiction writers kind of use the tool of a character sketch you right. know so that way sometimes like if you're kind of as you're moving through you're like oh wait a minute where did i say what did i say the parents names were you right. know or you know those different things um i don't use excel spreadsheet um but i use a program called scrivener and right in the scrivener program they have character sketches 
that you can just kind of like plug in and fill in right, right as you go. And it's just all this background data, but it's always right there at your fingertips, right? You know, within the binder of the board. So, you know, I think in that sense, all these tools that we use to kind of help make sure that consistency remains, I think it is key, especially, you know, I mean, it's good for, for nonfiction people, but I especially think it would be harder for, for fiction folks. No, it's good to have that because then when you get to the point where you're introducing the character, you can just cut and paste to describe mm. who, who the character is and what their motivations are. And you don't have to think off the top of your head. Right. In nonfiction, it's just you don't have to you have to, you know how the story goes. You have to figure out how to tell it. But I think in fiction, you have to also figure out how the story goes while you're figuring out how to tell it. And uh, that's that's probably why it requires that extra layer of you know character development and uh, character sketches, I guess. Yeah, and I think there's been um, other fiction writers that we've talked to who have said some of them are heavy outliners. They like, you know, they have a story, they outline it, they've got the arc, they've got all the components. And then there are other people that just sort of just write it and it just kind of, they just put it together, you know, as it comes to life, which to me seems like two very diametrically opposed. No, it's right. extremes. I could not do the just write it because I've seen people do that. They've been in critique groups I've been at and all of a sudden they realize 40% of their book doesn't pertain to what they're trying to say so they have to get rid of it a lot of dead ends yeah and and it's easy to spin it's easy to spin out of control like you say follow the wrong thread correct and the next thing you know you've given up a bunch of you've given up a bunch of pages that you can't that you can't really tie back because you can you can take a little bit of a wander but you have to tie it back and if you can't tie it back then you've then you've wasted your energy correct yes yeah, you got no one to kill your babies. Right. right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And my God, if you had pages and pages and pages of babies to kill, it yeah. would be terrible. My gosh. So how? what are your future plans now? Now, I mean, because you just came out with with Abandoned Homes. So are you doing like the publicity push and doing book signings? You got it in bookstores? Uh, yeah, I'm doing publicity. I have a couple of signings set up. I'll be on the Ocasin uh, Book Festival on November 4th. Uh, to sign books there, uh, and publicity. I'm also starting on my next novel. And because Paul O'Hare and uh, Margaret Hoffman fell in love, I fell in love with them. Mm. So the second book will be the second book of a series, hopefully many more. And I like to watch old movies, uh, like from Turner Classic Movies and The Thin Man. Right. A uh, uh, couple fascinated me, and so I'm going to base the series on them. Uh, the next book is set in Sussex County and in Greece. Because I spent a couple of months there in the last couple of years, so I learned a lot about it. Mm-hmm. And it involves an uh, embezzlement uh, of a large credit card company in Delaware, which we have a number of large credit oh, yeah, card companies absolutely. here. So, so the next novel, is it going to be sort of a sequel? A sequel. It's going to be yeah. a sequel to Abandoned But it'll be independent. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Same, same character, like the, like the – like any of the um, – the mystery writers a lot will have the same characters come through. And if you've read other books, you're like, oh, I know that this character doesn't like peanut butter or whatever. But there's nothing There's nothing in the other books that's going to propel the new story forward. Uh, no, not really. Right. So you'll, you'll be able to with, do them in, read them independently? Yes, you but, can. Right. Okay. But uh, I recommend you buy them both and read them both. <laughs> no doubt. No <laughs> doubt. Uh, it starts off the first chapter which I'm told in all mysteries you should have a murder. There's a murder in the first chapter to start off. And then the second chapter shows 
Margaret and Paul getting together after the end of the first novel, and eventually they get married, and on their honeymoon in Greece, that's when they discover the crime, they get involved with it. Nice. Do you know what else you should read one at a time, and they don't? you don't need to read the first one to understand the second one? Your limericks. Absolutely. If you wanted to get one of my limericks, how would you do that? Well, you could go to sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com, click on the Contact Us button, give us your name, your mailing address, pick a word. Tony will put it into a limerick. I will put it into a haiku. We will put it on a fancy schmancy postcard and pay a guy to bring it to your house. Just like it's 1853. It might even come on a pony. <laughs> All right, Stephanie. Now it's a part of the show where you thank the guests. Well, Frank, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure having you back. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and if you like it, then feel free to give us a good review. Tell your story.